The offseason is underway as Seattle GM John Schneider continues his draft prep, armed with a bevy of new coaches. Seahawks beat reporter Corbin Smith joins us from the NFL Combine to discuss the new staff, what he's hearing in Indianapolis, and the Seahawks' surprising scores on the NFLPA's annual report card. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my cantankerous producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? We're doing all right, Jackson. We are into the off-season officially. Sundays are significantly less busy than they were, and it's time for some self-improvement. You know what I mean? That's right. Time to look in the mirror. That's exactly right. And you know, it's a leap year, which is important because that means I have one extra day to be a recalcitrant bastard to you. <laughs> so, you know, big stuff ahead, man. How are you doing? Ah, oh, great, man. I was getting so excited to talk ball with you. And we've just been so blessed to have an amazing guest every time we do this. And, and today is no different. But, you know, when you and I were getting ready for the show, we were really focusing on the coaching staff. And I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff to get to there. And I can't wait to do that with Corbin. But then today, the NFLPA's annual report card came out. And what's cool about this is I think they poll every single player in the NFL. And I'm sure not all of them respond, but you end up with a really big sample size of unadulterated player opinion on how a franchise operates in all these different, you know, uh, categories. And the Seahawks end up middle of the pack this year. You know, they were 11th last year. They're 14th this year. And I'm just curious to you, as you look at it and you see the players' opinions of these various categories how much of that lines up with how you would have graded them from your perspective and what kind of surprised you? Well, I guess I'm not inside the building on a daily basis, so I can't really speak to like the food service in the cafeteria versus that of like the Bengals, which dear God, I hope their food oh, service God. is better than the Bengals. <laughs> how could it not be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but I don't know. I guess from a, from a top level view, most of the rankings were about the same or marginally worse than last year's. Uh, so I, I don't know. I was wondering yeah. maybe if the vibes were, were worse in 2023 than the previous season, just based on like wins and losses, but the polling took place from like end of August through mid November, which, you know, that it, it was kind of a similar trajectory throughout the season as, as the one prior. And, you know, that was kind of near the second Rams loss of where things took a turn for the worse. And God, dude, the Seahawks just like love losing to the Rams. They just love it. They're so good at it. They're oh, so, they're good, so at it. good at it. They're so good at it. And consistency is key. So, <laughs> you know, they got that going for them. But um, <laughs> they, uh, the, the two new entries on the survey this year were head coach and ownership. Head coach, the Seahawks scored well, which Pete Carroll, that makes sense. But the latter, the latter not so high. I know. I And, and the thing is, is like, the, the head coach thing is really easy to understand because the players are seeing the coach every single day and their lives are dictated by the head coach in many, many ways. Ownership, I mean, some owners are very, very involved and others less so. Paul Allen, a 
appeared to be a very involved ownership. Jody Allen, since Paul's passing, has been much more behind the scenes. And, and I'm curious how much of you know that rating, which I think ownership was 23rd, C-minus rating from the players, is, hey, we're actually disappointed in ownership versus I don't really know what to tell you. You know, the thing that surprised me the most, however, was, you know, the Allen family has been pretty unapologetic in the amount of money they're willing to invest into the sports teams that they own. The Seattle Seahawks, Portland Trailblazers. I mean, look at uh, Mike McDonald's contract. That's exactly right. I mean, they loaded this dude up. They've done that with their coaches in the past. They've been unafraid to wine and dine the people that they want to get into the franchise. So I was surprised to see very middling reports in terms of the training staff and the training room. You know, I've, I've seen the VMAC I've been inside of it. The weight room is preposterous and I think they got a B plus on that. I can't imagine what the A's look like, but I will say this also, you know, they're asked to compare, you know, you know, what, what's, what's this weight room experience like? And for a lot of NFL players, they've only been in one NFL, uh, one NFL weight room, right? Like it's only the special ones that see multiple contracts from multiple teams. And a lot of these guys are comparing it to like Alabama's weight room or Oregon's weight room or Clemson's weight room where it's like unlimited money. I mean, I think it's obvious the draft class was just full of malcontents. That's that's it. It's like, actually, actually this (laughs) might not be as nice as you know, the billion dollars, the boosters just poured into the sec weight room I'm coming from. So that part of it is interesting, but at the same time, you know, they're graded against the other NFL uh, franchises. So I was a little bit surprised by that. A little bit surprised, not not shocked, pleasantly surprised that Pete Carroll ranked so high. And it was really cool to see because, as you know, just incredibly grateful for Pete Carroll's 14 years as Seahawks head coach. I mean, it's, it was the most fun stretch that Seahawks fans have ever had. But you wonder with the team deciding to move off of him. All right. How much of that had to do with the players just being like, this is not the guy. And it appears that was not the case at all. Well, I think this confirmed what we assumed and that Pete had the locker room from start to finish. He, he had the support of the guys, the entirety of his time in Seattle. And this just boiled down to a results issue. You know, the performance on the field wasn't up to snuff yeah. and the team couldn't compete with the true blue bloods in the league. So it happens. And and at the end of the day, I'm I'm fine with that. And like you, I absolutely cannot wait to get Corbin's thoughts on this, the coaching staff and more. But first, if you're listening or watching us right now, it's hopefully because you like the show. And if you like the show, there are a few ways you can support it. If you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, take a couple of seconds to leave us a five-star rating. And if you're feeling super supportive, a quick review as well. You can do that right now. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, you'll find full video episodes, entertaining clips, and the audio reads of every Cigar Thoughts article. This is probably the best way to help this show grow, and growth is going to enable us to bring more of our football discourse your way. So we are grateful for the few seconds it takes to like and subscribe. And, as always, you can get your official Cigar Thoughts cigars at CigarThoughtsNFL.com, sponsored by Seattle Cigar Concierge. All right, man. 
We are entering that beautifully chaotic time of year where teams are churning coaching staffs, preparing for big roster decisions, prepping for the draft, adjusting to a new salary cap. And they're doing all of this while navigating and sometimes contributing to an ever-increasing billow of smoke screening. It is the advent of misinformation season, which is why we're thrilled to be joined by someone who closely covers the Seahawks and the league. He is a friend of the show, and he joins us from Indy where he's got his boots on the ground at the NFL Combine. He is Corbin Smith. Corbin, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jackson. Appreciate it. Oh, always, man. We we love having you in the Cigar Lounge. You always bring it. And you know, at the top of the show, Mike and I were discussing the NFLPA's report card that just came out. This is the second year that they've done that. And I thought it was so fascinating to get this anonymous uh, survey of all the NFL players. Just how do you think your team's doing on all of these different things? It's, it's so much different uh, than the perspective you normally get. Now, for Mike and I, our perspectives, while 100% accurate, are still a bit further removed from the Seahawks than yours. You are all up in there. So I'm curious, when you saw this, what stood out to you the most? Well, the first thing that jumped out to me was the ownership grade, which dropped, I believe, into 23rd out of 32 teams. Yeah, they got a C-, minus, which is 23rd out of the 32. And I've got to believe that that has to do more with Jody Allen just not being around, so to speak. I think she's involved behind the scenes a lot and is very active with what this franchise is doing. But, like, you don't see her. She's not Jerry Jones. She's not going to be doing press conferences every week. In fact, she's never done one before uh, since Paul Allen, unfortunately, passed. She has not done a press conference. I just think that's probably a big factor in this grade is that the players are probably like, we don't feel like there's any interest here because she's never around when – I could tell you that she's pretty active behind the scenes. I think she really cares about the state of the franchise. But I think from a player's perspective, you probably feel like the owner's not involved because she's just behind the scenes. She's behind the curtain all the time. Yeah. Do you get the sense that if these report cards were coming out during Paul's ownership, that that would be similar or the grade would be different, higher, lower? I would suspect that his would probably be higher just because if you did see him at games and you saw pictures of him with Pete Carroll, like at least there were some, there was some evidence that he was around like Jody Allen. Like if you search on search engines for photos, like all that's going to pop up is her at trailblazers games from like five or six years ago. And yep. it's not that she's not in the stadium. It's just, she, again, you just don't see her around. So I think with Paul Allen, he was obviously a pretty hands-off owner too, to let the, coaches and stuff handle their business but he at least was a figure that you saw at the stadium and things of that nature so I think he would have scored very favorably on this and I don't necessarily think that Jody Allen is a c-minus owner but I think that this does have a lot to do with the perception that she's just not around yeah no I get that and on the other end of the spectrum the thing that Seattle ranked the highest at received an a grade was head coach a head coach they got fired. Pete Carroll got an A. And I think from a player's perspective, that's not altogether surprising. Does that surprise you at all? No. Pete Carroll is still very popular in the locker room with the Seahawks, with him being dismissed. That was never that was not part of the equation behind why this move was made. There was no consideration for moving on because the players were not buying in or the players were no longer in sync with Pete Carroll. Still was one of the most popular coaches out there, 
but there were clearly some issues with the assistant coaches that had been hired, some of the practices of promoting guys within the staff. It hadn't worked out for the Seahawks. Uh, in the last couple of years, just for example, Clint Hurd is the defensive coordinator. I think Clint Hurd is a really good defensive line coach. I just think that he was a bit over his head as a defensive coordinator. It was not something he had done at any level. I think that was one of the biggest issues that created some disconnect between John Schneider and Pete Carroll. But as far as with the players, that disconnect was not there. We're, we're, we're going to talk about the coaching staff in a little bit, but since we're talking about Pete, I have been curious to get your perspective. How surprised were you that the team moved on from Carroll? And how much do you think that loss to Pittsburgh served as sort of a final nail? I don't even know that the Steelers game was the final nail. I mean, John Schneider's talked about that Ravens game, which ironically you had Mike McDonald on the other sideline. But I think that was the game that really showed John Schneider, like this is how far away we are right now Mm, from mm -hmm. being able to contend for a Super Bowl. We just got smacked. Our coaching staff got outcoached in every facet, especially on offense. Shane Waldron just looked like he was in no man's land with the game plan that he tried to orchestrate against Baltimore's defense that day. And Mike McDonald just dominated him. And I think at that point, John Schneider was sitting there thinking, and I got to get me a coach that's going to be able to put in a game plan like this. And how many times this year, this is going to fall some on Pete Carroll, but how many times this year did this team come out flat and they just didn't look like they were ready to play? They tied for the NFL league lead for the most touchdowns given up on defense on opening drives. Like they consistently were not ready to play. And that was a game, oddly enough, in Baltimore where they started okay. But then things just unraveled and they got beat up in the second half. And I think John Schneider at that point felt like, gosh, I want that opportunity to be able to hire a coach that I can bring in that I think can get some spark here. It just, that spark was not there this year for this football team. And so yeah. I wasn't surprised that they moved on from Pete Carroll, to be sure. honest with you. Sure. No, that and and that's, that's what I was looking for, man, because you've got your fingers on this pulse so much in, and I'm just... Cause I was surprised, like not shocked, but surprised when it happened. And then you start to kind of reverse engineer that decision. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I I think maybe there were some signs there that the gap is maybe a little too big for the incumbent to close. And And I'll uh, I'll add this Jackson, you mentioned the Steelers game. And like I said, I don't think that was the nail in the coffin. I think that the Seahawks were already leaning towards this decision being made and there's been some murmurs back there that maybe Carol had talked about retirement too I can't substantiate that nobody has confirmed that to me but I'm sure that that was a factor behind the scenes too but that Steelers game I think the players were still bought in but that was the first time I think I'd ever watched a Pete Carroll coach team where there wasn't an effort on defense if your name was not Bobby Wagner or Leonard Williams It just seemed like everybody else just kind of folded over, especially the two touchdown runs that Najee Harris had in that game. Oh, man. I felt terrible for Bobby Wagner on the second one because he almost got Najee Harris to the ground with four Steelers pushing from behind. And Reek Wolin, I think Quandre Diggs was over there too. They had a chance to come in and help out, and they really did nothing. So Bobby looked like the only guy who gave a fuck in that game on defense. Man, it was it it was him and Leonard Williams. Williams, yes, yes, actually Witherspoon. Witherspoon had some really nice plays, but that's fair. That was an oversimplification on on my part, but uh, yeah, for for sure. I mean that that was a tough watch. And and circling back to this report card, you know, 
the first year it came out, which was just just last year, 2023, Seahawks ranked 11th overall. They slipped a little bit this year at 14th. And, you know, the, the head coach and the ownership categories were new this year. But everything else was pretty similar with the exception they saw slips in the treatment of uh, players' families, the training room, and the training staff. Now, I don't know how much insight you get to those aspects of the franchise and how they run it, but did you get a sense that there was increased dissatisfaction in those categories? No, I honestly would have very little input on that because players, when you ask them about injuries, the last thing that they're going to mention is, yeah, these trainers just aren't getting the job done for me. Like, yeah, I, fair typically enough. that's not going to happen. Um, you know, there are certain guys on the team maybe that would be more more susceptible to being able to slip up and say something like that. But no, I mean, generally, if we've heard anything about the training staff, it's been positive. So again, these are anonymous. Players can say what they really want to say on these. And so this is telling to me that there are some things that the Seahawks need to address. But I can tell you this organization has been really good in the past about when things like this crop up, we're going to get it fixed. That weight room, it got to be, but I've seen that weight room. That weight room is pretty impressive, and I think they'll find ways to make it better. But um, certainly 14th, they'd like to be higher. But you could be the Kansas City Chiefs and your owner. Who, I, I don't get this, but he's an F minus owner in the end of- an F minus. How I didn't even know an F minus existed, and I it certainly- doesn't like that's that's like a um, oh, gosh, what's. What's the move? What's the movie where uh, the guy has a zero point zero zero GPA? Uh, why? Why can I not remember the movie that that is? I don't know. It's gonna drive me nuts. I don't know. John Belushi and those uh, guys. Animal House. Animal House. Yeah, I don't know why I was blanking on that, but I feel like the F minus. That's got to be from Dean Warden's office. <laughs> I know Animal House, but didn't remember that part of it. But I mean, it's and it's interesting because I mean the Chiefs are back to back world champions. And, and I do think that on-field success very often mirrors uh, ownership's approach. Um, you know, is it is it Clark Hunt now that owns it? And it was Lamar Hunt before. Um, you know, it's I, I think Lamar Hunt was considered a very good and active owner. It's it, I was very surprised to see that. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, these are $5 billion franchises. And a lot of them are taking it very seriously and really investing into the player experience, the coach experience. So it's, it's tough to really be at the top. Like the teams that are at the top, I think Miami got an A or an A minus in every single category. Like that's tough to do because you're beating 31 other teams that are pouring a tremendous amount of resources into this experience. Now we were talking about Pete Carroll and the decision to move on from him the main thrust of this article when Mike and I were prepping for it was to talk about the coaching staff and to really get ourselves and, and the people listening familiarized with a whole new staff. I mean, I think there's one holdover from last year, maybe two. And so, you know, on the last show, we talked about Mike McDonald as the new head coach. We talked about Ryan Grubb was new offensive coordinator and everything that led up to that hiring and how exciting that was. I do want to get your early impression of those guys, but also really want you to kind of just help educate me on some of these new guys, including new defensive coordinator, Aiden Durd. Let's start there. What do you know about him? What can we expect? How did he end up with this job? So what an interesting path that Aiden Durde took to the NFL. I mean, we're talking about a guy that 
started playing football over in England fairly late. And then he ends up playing for the London Olympians. And then he shout out Matty Brown. Yeah. He's in NFL Europe for a little while. He had a couple cups of tea in the NFL. And then after that, he starts to coach over in England. He was with the London Warriors, I believe, was the team that he was with. He was the defensive coordinator there for six years. So he has been a defensive coordinator before, just not the NFL level by any means, but has been before. But Dan Quinn was talking about this yesterday at the Combine here in Indy about just how savvy and how smart this guy is his ability to build relationships and i'm just i'm thinking about the hard knocks clip where uh, jerry jones was talking about <laughs> talking about him out there and basically like you feel like you're listening to winston churchill out there trying to, to do <laughs> drills and he just you can tell in the video clips they had players are they are extremely focused on everything he says and i don't think it's all the accent but certainly that that has to be something that is a little bit of a shock to the system for it probably NFL. helps you remember what he's saying yeah <laughs> nfl i mean i mean it's different than if i was coaching and i was talking like dr phil or something like i think then guys would have a really hard time focusing but in sure. this sense when you have a guy that's got this british accent this thick british accent and He's telling you plays and concepts and keys to read and stuff. You probably are going to be able to remember that a little bit better. But the guy has done his time. I mean, he he moved up with being an intern with the Cowboys and the Falcons. He turned that into an opportunity with the NFL's International Pathway Program, which he was a director of that. And there's been a few success stories that ended up spawning from that. And then he went back to work for Dan Quinn in Atlanta as a linebacker coach in the last three years. We've seen Dallas's defensive line. That is one of the nastiest defensive lines in the NFL. And Adam no Durant was the coach of that group. And so I think that's the most exciting part about him coming over is he was able to get maximum production out of veterans. We saw what Micah Parsons has done in the last three years there. Uh, playing for Adam Durday, and they've had other players like Dorrance Armstrong, who didn't do much in the first few years, and he's been really productive as a reserve rusher the last couple seasons. It just seems like everybody he's touched, he's been able to maximize. Even Mozzie Smith, the first-round pick, started rough last year. By end of the season, was playing at a much better level. This guy knows how to develop players and get the best out of them. That's really exciting because that was a hallmark of Mike McDonald's time as a defensive coordinator, and even as a defensive assistant, that it was a a really consistent theme that you heard when you talked to you know you heard players and and coaches talk about him is his ability to be very very clear on players responsibilities how they fit into the scheme and something that frankly I feel has been lacking in Seattle for a while and and you know if McDonald is seeing that in Durday and you know, hopefully that's the last time I mispronounce his name. Uh, but it it goes to show like this guy is a relative unknown in NFL circles. And he's going to have a chance to really make his mark on a defense that has been, you know, from a scheme standpoint at the cutting edge of the NFL for the last couple of years. The cool thing about it is when, you know, the scary thing when you have a great scheme on either side of the ball and let's just assume until proven otherwise that the Seahawks are going to have a good scheme on the defensive side of the ball with McDonald here. The worry is that, oh, they're going to get poached. Like, that just happens. It's really hard. We saw how hard that hit the Philadelphia Eagles this year to have their coordinators go somewhere else. With McDonald, 
it's one of those things where he's calling the defense and he was pretty open in his uh, initial press conference about how he is the de facto defensive coordinator until someone earns that trust to where he can hand those reins off. So if the Seahawks defense does come out and they smash this year, now, if that leads to Dirty getting an opportunity somewhere else, you're still going to have that continuity. So that part of it is exciting to me. Yeah, I agree with you 110% on that. That The fact that you're going to have a guy coming in that isn't going to necessarily have to carry the full workload of a defensive coordinator right off the bat. And who knows? These guys really hit it off in their interviews. This could be a situation where going into the season, depending how those meetings go with the coaching staff that they're doing right now, he may feel confident in Adam Durde being able to do that. I don't think that's how it's going to play out, but this does give you flexibility. I think the thing that excites me about how they've put the staff together, not just the blend of experience and youth in the coaching staff, but the fact that they've had coaches that complement each other so well. Because Mike McDonald, he is a linebacker coach primarily. That is what he's cut his teeth in. Now you've got a defensive line coach in Adam Durde that's done a really nice job. Carl Scott, I think, was a real bright spot for the Seahawks coaching staff the last few years. And there's a reason he's the one holdover that's returning. So you've got these guys together. Leslie Frazier's got a secondary background, a damn good secondary coach at that. I do want to talk about I do want to talk about Leslie Frazier because I think a lot of people are like, really? Leslie Frazier? But he and McDonald, they've had kind of a mentor-mentee relationship for a long time, haven't they? Yeah. And what's interesting is I think it was the 2016 season that Frazier was coming off of his tenure with the Vikings. I think he was with the Buccaneers, if I remember correctly, for a couple of years. I had to go back and look. He's been in the league so long that there's been a number of teams he's been with. But he ended up with the Ravens as a secondary coach that year and really took to Mike McDonald and his ability to coach at that point. And he's been a mentor for him over the last season when Leslie Frazier was out of football last year. They talked a lot. And so... This was a really fitting reversal trend here where I know you've been a head coach in this league, Leslie. I know you've been a defensive coordinator for two decades. Right. right. I want you here to help me with this coaching position so that I can so cool. hit the ground running. And I just that was probably the hire I was most excited about because I think Leslie Frazier is an incredible football coach. You look at what Buffalo did in his six years, he was the defensive coordinator. They never finished worse than 10th in turnovers created. Wow. The last three years or four years he was there, they had three top two defenses there with him as the defensive coordinator. And I know that Sean McDermott has his hands in on that, but they missed Leslie Frazier last year when he was not the defensive coordinator and he had decided to move on from the organization. They missed him last year. So I think his presence, his ability to relate with players too – He's probably the most exciting hire for me just because I think he is the perfect seasoned veteran coach to work with a first-time coach in Mike McDonald and really help him weather the storm that we know he's going to deal with at times this year. You know, I, I couldn't agree more, man, because we talk a lot on this show about the difference between being a coordinator and a head coach. It's like promoting your best salesperson or your best finance guy to CEO. And just because they were really good at this thing doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be really good at running the company. And when you're the head coach of an NFL team, it's not just what you do on Sundays. It's how you run the company. And to have someone with that experience, even if it didn't necessarily go the way Leslie Frazier anticipated when he was a head coach, 
someone who's been through there and can say, hey, these are the things you're going to have to be aware of, I think is so huge because that's going to simplify that stuff for McDonald and allow him to focus more of his energy on the X's and O's and on the stuff that happens on Sunday that ultimately creates the fans opinion of the job that they're doing. I want to stick with the defense here for a second because look, there's, there's no way around it. Even though they got off to a good start last year, Seahawks defense was a failure last year and they've been closer to a failure than a success for most of the last, I'd say six seasons. So do you think that when you look at Seattle being essentially a bottom five defense over the last 10 weeks of 2023, how much of that was scheme coaching, et cetera, and how much of it is they just didn't have the guys? Because I look at this defense and I think they've got the guys. I would tend to agree with you. I'd be I would be leaning 70-30 on this. I, I'd be saying 70% of it is scheme. I mean, how many times did we see running backs find Too many. massive creases? Too many. Because the the scheme wasn't there. Players weren't put in position to be able to make plays. It just didn't seem like the players, and we saw the busted coverages too. Seattle's got some really darn good defensive backs, and you got players like Quandre Diggs who were really savvy with football IQ. Those type of things shouldn't be happening, and so... Again, I'm not picking on Clint Hurt here because I think he was a really good defensive line coach, but that was a huge issue the last two years is that guys were consistently either not in the right spot or the other team was just out scheming the living daylights out of the Seahawks. And so simply having coaches that are going to be able to put their players in position to be able to make plays. And that was the theme today at the Combine. I talked to a bunch of Michigan players who played for Mike McDonald at the Combine and Something that was the common theme here is he's going to put you in position to be able to make plays. And I just mm-hmm. felt like that did not happen the last two years, particularly in the run game. There should not be semi-sized holes against a defense that has the caliber of players that the Seahawks have. No, I I, I agree. I mean, I think they did a pretty good job of stocking the fridge on the defensive side over the last couple of years. And it just to not to they to see the, it well to see they the cooks the burn fridge, the food but they, they took they the, burned the food man it no was, i think a better a better comparison in this case they stocked the fridge and then they unplugged it <laughs> is what happened <laughs> that's how you finish 31st and run defense yeah like, you got rotted milk out there that's just yeah that's that's what it felt like now you know there's there's two other new coordinators we touched on ryan grubb and then they also brought in jay harbaugh to be the special teams coordinator and there's a long history. Uh, in fact, pretty much Mike McDonald's entire professional coaching history is related to the Harbaugh's, both with John at uh, Baltimore, two different stints at Baltimore, working his way up from, I think, a third down pass rush specialist to defensive coordinator, the number one defense in the NFL. But then in the interim, he went and rescued University of Michigan's defense, took him from like 117th in points allowed to top 10 in the entire country. And, and built the foundation for the defense that ultimately won the national championship. So now Jay Harbaugh continues that, that uh, trend with McDonald. So you got some familiarity there. I think that's interesting. And then you've also got the coordinator of the offense that McDonald's defense beat in the national championship after being the number one offense all year. Talk to me about Ryan Grubb. Talk to me about Jay Harbaugh. Yeah, I'll start with Harbaugh first because this was maybe the 
I don't want to say it was a head-scratching hire because I think Jay Harbaugh is a good coach. But that was one initially that I was wondering a little bit about because when I watched Michigan last year, that was actually maybe the biggest weakness on their football team, the Hmm. games that I watched. Their special teams were not very sharp, particularly in Big Ten games. But what I ended up doing was going back, and I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in the state of Indiana, so I understand how pivotal Big Ten football is. Like There's three things in the state of Indiana. There's... There's God, there's corn, and there's Big Ten football. And there's just and it's a different kind of football. They expect it to be black and blue. And so you look at the way that the special teams played for Michigan in the other seasons that Harbaugh was here. I watched some games from 2020, 2021, 2022. Their special teams was outstanding. He had a number of guys that ended up being all Big Ten selections a bunch of players that got drafted that were offensive, defensive players, but also could play special teams. So I think last year was more of a, it was more of a, an exception to the rule than the norm. This guy's had consistently really good special teams. The other thing I like about him, he's been a position coach at tight end and running back. In a year, he was the running back coach at Michigan. They had Haskins and <clears throat> Zach Charbonnet as their two running backs. Charbonnet scored 13 touchdowns as a true freshman there, and he was the backup running back at Michigan. So you're bringing in a guy that knows some players on the roster. He's coached a number of different positions. So I'm more on board with that higher than what I was initially where I thought, is this a name-related thing? No, he's he's a very good special teams coach that has a long track record. As for Ryan Grubb, Leslie Frazier is my number one most exciting hire. Ryan Grubb is right behind him at number two. And Tell me why. My, my perception on him has changed a little bit now that I've had a chance. I am a running back by trade. That was the position I played. It's the position that I coached. And my first concern was, how was he going to be able to adapt to the NFL with his running game? And then I turned on the film from this year, and he completely did a 180. His first four years as an offensive coordinator at the D1 level Three of those years at Fresno State, his first year at Washington, this team ran zone, his teams ran zone almost 70% of the time, every mm-hmm. year. They were a zone-heavy team. Last year, they ran gap schemes, so like power, counter-tray. They just killed teams with their counter-tray, pulling guard and tackle, just ambushed people. Oregon, I think Dan Lanning's probably still having nightmares about that counter-tray. But this guy showed me that, yeah, he was winging the ball over the place, but he's got three or four NFL receivers minimum on his roster. Of course you're going to sling the ball around. He was playing to the strength of his personnel, but he had a very well-crafted run game. And as John Schneider told me yesterday, I asked him, off podium, what is the one thing that really jumped out to you? And he immediately uh, spit out, time of possession. Washington, the last two years, has dominated time of possession, not just because they were a really effective passing team. Oh, but remember when the Seahawks remember when the Seahawks dominated time of possession? God, it feels like I a mean, freaking John century face, ago. His face just lit up when he answered that question, guys. I mean, he was uh, – because I figured he was just going to say, oh, you know, they, they were efficient with the run game or whatever. But he immediately was like, no, time, he's a time of possession. Like, and they've been god-awful at that the last couple <laughs> it's of years. so bad. So Man, you're so bringing bad. in a coach that really knows how to do that. And part of it was because even though they didn't run the ball a lot, I mean, Dylan Johnson ran for almost 1,200 yards last year. Yeah. And he wasn't even supposed to be the starter at the beginning of the season. 
they ran the football as effective as anybody in the Pac-12, and they had a very physical offensive line. So I think he proved he's more than capable of building up a run game. And I think you're going to see it a little bit more in the NFL with more under center. He has shown adaptability throughout his coaching tenure. Uh, yeah. Eastern Michigan, he was the O-line coach. And Eastern Michigan, his last year there, they finished with the seventh most rushing yard they've had in a single season in school history. So he has a background of coordinating and helping orchestrate really good run games. He just knows how to play to his personnel. So I know he's excited about the receivers Seattle has, but he's also really excited about the running backs he's got. Yeah, you know, one of the things we talked about with Steven Ruiz last last week is there seems to be, from a skill set standpoint, a lot of overlap between the talent on the Seahawks offense and the talent on the UW offense. You know, um, like I mentioned in that show, I was talking with Danny Kelly about comps for Michael Penix, and I... I said Geno Smith. I think that there's a lot of similarities in their games there. Obviously, I think there's some really obvious comps between DK Metcalf and Roma Dunze, JSN and McMillan and Polk and just and Lockett. Like, I think you can do a lot of that same stuff. Now, can you get away with as wide of uh, wide receiver splits as they had? Maybe not. And and we'll see if he can adapt. But you talked about his ability to adapt his run game, and I'm sure his experience coaching offensive line plays into that. When you look at the Seahawks personnel up front, do you see them, would you anticipate Ryan Grubb's offense having more zone scheme running, more kind of that power trap with pulling guards running, a little bit of a mix? Because with Dylan Johnson, who was very productive, we'll see what he's like at the next level, but he was very productive running back. I see him profiling a lot more as a Zach Charbonnet type of runner Whereas Ken Walker is like special. Ken Ken Walker is a steal a touchdown type of running back. If you're Ryan Grubb and you're looking at this backfield and you're looking at this offensive line, which way do you lean? Well, I think that that question is going to be better answered in about a month and a half to two months. That's fair. Because but I'm going to make is, you answer it now. No, but but here's the I'll, I'll give you my rationale and then I'll predict what I expect is going to happen. But. You look at the Washington O-line last year, and you had a number of future NFL guys up front that were both athletic and really physical. So they had the ability to run a lot of plays with pulling guards, pulling centers, pulling tackles because of the personnel they had. And I look at what Seattle's got right now. If Anthony Bradford is going to be a starter at right guard, I don't see that. I mean, he's athletic for his size, but I don't see that playing to his strengths necessarily if you're pulling him a bunch. Sure. I think he's better when he can just shoot out of his stance and just blow people up in the gap run game. On the other side, Damian Lewis, if you bring him back, I could see him his best. He is a decent puller, but he is also another guy that's big body. He likes to bully people. So I would think they would run more of a gap-oriented scheme. But what we don't know is if Damian Lewis is going to be back. We don't know if Ryan Grubb is sold on Anthony Bradford at this point. I made the argument in my Blueprint article that I come out with every year. I'd go out and spend big money on a guard because I think we've got an OC that's an offensive line coach uh, by trade. And he's going to want talented dudes up front. And how many years of the Seahawks going cheap in their offensive line at some too many. point you too you've got to make an investment so get kevin dotson from the rams and free agency or somebody like that that's young pay him big money and 
invest in your offensive line. If they do that, uh, Dodson's another guy that really likes to get his hand in the dirt and blow people up. He's a really good pass protector. But mm-hmm. I think what they do with their personnel, to answer your question, that is really what's going to determine because Ryan Grubb has shown he can run both types of offenses in the run game. It's really going to boil down to, after the draft and free agency, what does that interior O-line look like? Is Abe Lucas going to be healthy? That is still the big question mark at right tackle. But it's going to boil down to the personnel that they've got. And right now, unfortunately, all three of your starters in the middle from last year are scheduled to be free agents. And who knows which one of those guys they want to get back, which guys they're going to be able to get back. And then, obviously, the draft. This is a really good guard class, but you got one pick in the first two rounds. So... There's a lot of question marks there before I can truly answer that. But as far as predictions go, I I think they're going to be leaning towards that gap game because I have a feeling that they're going to get some big guys in the middle that are going to, even if it's Damian Lewis or if Anthony Bradford, whatever they choose to do, uh, I think they're going to be getting guys that are both powerful and capable of doing some of that pulling stuff in the gap scheme like we saw with Washington last year. Yeah, and you know, looking back through Grubb's history, I don't, I mean. How, how many people have, but I don't think he's ever had a runner like Ken Walker and Ken Walker for all of his incredible. I mean, he reminds me of Le'Veon Bell in his ability to almost like transport from one hash mark to the other in, in just a blink, right? The other side of that coin is nobody is going to call him a disciplined runner, <laughs> You know, I mean, the guy is swinging for the fences on almost every run. He was better last year at just taking what was blocked. And it's okay to just get three yards if that's what's blocked for you. Because it's better than minus two trying to trying to pop it. But as on the flip side, we didn't see the home run runs from Ken Walker last year. So it'll be really, really curious to me to see how much Grubb wants to lean into that. Because... I think that the way Washington ran their offense the last couple of years really suits a Charbonnet style runner, but Charbonnet doesn't have that top end game breaking ability that Kenneth Walker does. And, and I think that transitions to the offensive line and Mike, I know that you were particularly interested in the new offensive line coach. Yeah, Ryan Grubb actually isn't the only coach that uh, the Seahawks hired from the University of Washington by way of Tuscaloosa. So, uh, Corbin, talk to me a little bit about Scott Huff and his path to becoming the Seahawks' new offensive line coach. Yeah, you know, this is an interesting one for me because I actually, I grew up a Boise State fan and Scott Huff played at Boise State before he got into his coaching and he actually was an offensive line coach at his alma mater and then he worked his way up to Washington and His path is a little different because I think a lot of people just kind of assume that he came to Washington with Ryan Grubb. He actually came the year before that. So you started to see Washington's offensive line improve during the 2021 season. And then DeBoer's staff came in and they retained Scott Huff. And he's a really good teacher in terms of technique. He really understands how to coach that up. And that fits with his playing style. There's a reason he didn't make it in the NFL. He was never going to have the physicality or the strength or uh, the pure size to be able to play in the league, but he was a technician at Boise State, and we know they were very effective at moving the football, and their line did a great job. He was a big part of that. So he's carried over what made him a good college football player into a very good offensive line coach. Now, 
this may be a tougher one to project even than Ryan Grubb because he has not coached NFL offensive linemen and it's a little different game and I think that some of your best offensive linemen in the NFL I don't want to say that they're not technicians but in the NFL there's a lot of guys that just are monsters and they just bully guys around or they're just they're able to get by with their athleticism whereas in college uh, there's a lot of really good college linemen who they're able to succeed because of their technique. And so it is going to be a little different for him trying to adjust to coaching professional offensive linemen. I think he's really good at what he does. We just had to see if that technician type teacher, how much does that end up improving Seattle's offensive line off the bat? And is he going to be able to handle that duty when he's working with professional athletes? I think he'll be able to, but he is one of the question marks just because of that lack of experience. See, y'all listening, you see why we wanted Corbin for this? This is a football coach who is now a football reporter. This is why we wanted to talk to Corbin about the Seahawks' new coaching staff. But at the end of the day, most of the conversation around a football team in the NFL is going to surround the quarterback. And the curse of Geno Smith is that because of his journey to being a starter in Seattle, he's almost never safe, right? Like no matter how he plays, he's always going to be seen by some folks as a journeyman backup. And this idea that you can do better. And look, I'm not going to sit here and say that Geno Smith's best quarterback in the NFL far from it, but I, I think that if you were to just isolate his performance over the last couple of years, he's acquitted himself very well. Now, there's been some noise in Seahawks fandom over the last week or so regarding Smith and to what degree he fits in Seattle's plans. As you know, they recently restructured his contract. They freed up some cap space by guaranteeing his money for the season, seemingly solidifying his role as a starter. However, some are reading that as a way of facilitating or even advertising a trade especially after McDonald's recent comments about the QB situation, which were non-committal, let's say. I certainly know how I feel about it, but I want to get your perspective. What do you make of the Geno contract move, and do you anticipate him being the Seahawks starter this year? I'm not going to sit here and say that the people that are making the argument that this could be to help facilitate a trade or make it easier to make a trade, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's completely off the mark because... It does make some sense on the peripheral when you're talking about it because, yeah, whoever trades for them, they're not going to have to take on as much money. It makes sense for them. They might be willing to give up more. But let's look at it from a Seattle perspective. And I was talking about this on our podcast yesterday. I don't know how you can look at the last statement that we got from John Schneider yesterday where off podium, he was asked about the timing of this restructure and he immediately said, whoa, 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 wait a second. Uh, this was taken way way more attention from people outside the building than what we had. He mm-hmm. was going to be here. It was just a matter of when we were going to give him his roster bonus. There was there's no ambig- ambiguity. Excuse me. There's no ambiguity to this statement. Like it's not something where it's saying we never intended. You know, like Russell Wilson. We never intended to trade Russell Wilson. It was not that kind of a statement. And so. Yeah, we've seen we've seen general managers and coaches make definitive statements like that and then turn around and do the opposite. So I'm not going to sit here and say that it's physically impossible that the Seahawks could move Geno Smith, but they would absorb a $27 million dead cap hit now if they traded him. So unless you get a team to trade you a first-round pick, then you can justify 
eating that kind of a dead cap hit. But I don't know why you would open up almost $5 million in cap space and then turn around and eat $27 million. That's what I'm saying, man. That's what I'm saying. I just don't think this was ever part of the process. I think that Gino has been the guy. And, you know, the statements, you look at the way that questions are worded. I think that is such a big part of this business. And I've had to learn that myself. But like yesterday, when John Schneider on podium was asked about if Geno Smith is the starter right now, when you include the word right now in there, you just open it up. John Schneider's going to say, well, of course he's the starter right now until he isn't. I kind of got that as him being a little bit, uh, I want to say jeering a little bit there with that comment. But what he said off podium, he really, and as far as I'm concerned, it was a commitment statement that at least for this year. Now, 2025, that's completely open for discussion that they could have a quarterback. I mean, there's change. like six teams league wide that know who their quarterback's going to be in 2025. <laughs> exactly. You know what I'm saying? I just think, yeah, I just think at the end of the day, and I've been arguing this, honestly, the Geno Smith noise has been going on since the season ended from a lot of fans. There just seems to be a group of fans that's just, they're just adamant. We got to move on. We're not going to win a Super Bowl with him. Who are you going to get right now? Okay, that is going to give you a better chance to win a Super Bowl than Geno Smith. Like, uh, unless I mean, and I don't think Kirk Cousins coming off an Achilles injury, you're going to have to pay him more money. He's older than what Geno Smith is. He has a lot more wear and tear on him than what Geno Smith does. I mean, I don't see that being a better situation. You're not going to get... I mean, I I, th- I would still take Geno Smith over Baker Mayfield, even what he did in Tampa Bay last year. He had the Dave yeah. Canales effect last season. We saw what Geno did with Dave Canales. So yep. I just... There's not a quarterback out there that's going to be better than well, what this, you've got right now. And I'm glad you said that because this is the part of a lot of these types of discussions that does not get enough oxygen. Okay, you want to move off of Gino? What's next, right? You don't think Gino's good enough? Sure. Okay. I'll eat, and there's I'll a hear lot of fans out. that want what, Drew Locke in. Yeah. yeah we, we saw one we great went, drive from Drew Locke. We saw one great drive. And and look, I mean, shit, I, I've muted so many people on Twitter over that. And I like Drew Locke. I like Drew Locke. But... The, the question you have to ask yourself if you want to move off of Gino is how do you get better at the most important position in American sports? And when you're drafting 16th, you do not have a clear path to that. You're not going to get one of the top three quarterbacks in this draft. You might not get, if you're a JJ McCarthy believer, it's sounding like you might not even get a chance at that. So even if you were to trade Gino and let's say you get a first round pick, and I don't think you're going to get a first round pick for Gino as much as I like him. But even if you did, then you're talking about maybe packaging both of those picks to go up and get the quarterback and not addressing needs elsewhere. To me, given it, I, I don't think it makes sense for a teardown rebuild almost ever for an NFL team. I think that you have to set up too many dominoes to fall the right way when you do that. This roster specifically, given the age of their best players, you are not wasting the rookie contracts of Devin Witherspoon. You're not wasting the rookie contracts of Jackson Smith and Jigba and Kenneth Walker and Zach Charbonnet and Tariq Woolen and on down the line to rebuild. Because if you do that, by the time you are ready to compete, if you make all of the right decisions, now you got to pay all those dudes. And now you're starting over again. 
So to me, everything about how this roster is constructed and how well I think they've done with bringing in young talent since the Russell Wilson trade says it's about competing over the next three to four years. And Geno Smith allows you to do that. However, I don't want to spend all of this time talking about how I'm right, even though I am. I do want to give some time to the counter argument. So make an argument for trading Geno Smith. I don't have one. (laughs) Unless here. So here is the only way. And I'm just saying this because we know we now know the Seahawks met with Jaden Daniels at the combine. And this is going to kind of sound counterintuitive with what you were just discussing, because I completely agree with you that I don't think a full scale rebuild ever makes sense in the NFL. I just think there's way too many moving parts and there's too much risk. Contracts are too short. Yeah. And the Seahawks have done such a great job drafting the last couple of years. As you said, if you draft a quarterback this year, you trade up to go get that guy, but now you don't have another pick until the fourth round. Like, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. And you're probably going to have to give up high picks next year too, to be able to make that move up. Cause Oh, by the way, you don't have a second round pick this year. That's right. So that can't be one of your uh, tokens that you put on the table. Like it's, it's tough. It's challenging. So I just, as far as counter arguments go, the only way that I could see this being justified is if John Schneider says, look, I do think we're really close to being able to compete, but I want to get a quarterback on a rookie deal, and then I'm going to be able to spend a little bit more in free agency to keep building this team like what I did with Russell Wilson. And you can go up and get somebody like a Jaden Daniels or a J.J. McCarthy that you're high on. But I just think that the draft capital right now, it is not the time for them to do it. They don't have the pieces in place. And you're really going to leverage your future by doing that. And why would you want to do that with a rookie quarterback? You don't want to put yourself in a position where you're leveraging the future when it's going to take a couple of years for that player to really hit its hit his stride. I just don't think that it makes any sense. I just don't. There's not a path to me that makes sense to move on from Geno Smith right now. There's not. Yeah, I'm with you. How do you feel about drafting a Michael Penix or a Bo Nix or a Spencer Rattler if they're available with one of your third round picks? I'll throw another name in there. Michael Pratt. Oh, yeah. From Tulane. Yes. I like him a lot. He's... He is very sneaky athletic. If you would watch you use, Tulane, would you use a third round pick on him? I think he's worth a third round pick. I I actually like him over Spencer Rattler, and I know that Spencer Rattler is a guy that has a ton of physical tools. I just haven't seen the consistency. I watched Michael Pratt put Tulane, a program that has perennially been god awful, and beat USC in the Holiday Bowl a couple years ago. I mean, I watched this guy take this program to a level they had never been. And he doesn't have a cannon arm. He's not a he's not a guy that's a pop gun like uh, Pennington was for the Jets. But he's not going to throw the ball 75 yards downfield. But he's very accurate. He is a underrated athlete that can run the ball a little bit. He is tough as nails. So uh, that would be a guy... And maybe somebody like a Bo Nix, certainly Michael Penix could make sense to be back with Ryan Grubb. That would be, to me, the spot where it's most likely they would take a quarterback because there's just too many other areas of need. And I think this is a great offensive line class. I think in the first round, either O-line or D-line, somebody like Johnny Newton who wants to play with Devin Witherspoon again, that would be where I would go. I think they've got to attack the trenches 
and work with the quarterback they've got now. But if you want to use a later pick, there are some guys in this draft that I think could be developed into potential starters that are going to be available on day two. Yeah, you know, we're going to get a lot more familiar with this draft class over the coming weeks. But, I mean, from where I sit, I look at this roster and how the contracts stack up at the different positions. I wouldn't mind if they used every single one of their picks on offensive and defensive line in this draft. And this feels like the draft to do it. It feels deep at those positions. It is. I think if you look at my rankings as far, and again, this is just my opinion based on what I've seen so far. I've got a number of prospects I still need to go and look at some tape on, but I think the interior O-line and the cornerbacks are probably the two deepest groups in this class. Seattle doesn't need corners right now, but offensive line, they absolutely need them. And there's some dogs in here. There's some really good interior offensive linemen. There's some guys that have tackle and guard flexibility, which they might need with Abraham Lucas. We don't know where that's mm. heading at this mm-hmm. point. So I, I'm I'm optimistic he's going to be good to go, but we don't know yet at this point. So the fact that you have a number of guys that can play tackle and guard both at a high level, Graham Barton from Duke is somebody that I'm very high on, nasty physical finisher. Yeah, athletic, I like him. can play guard and tackle, maybe even center. Uh, there's just a lot of versatility in this draft class. So I think that interior O-line, that is a huge strength. you got to take advantage of it. Defensive line is somewhat top-heavy. There's some really good guys early in the draft, but I think that there's going to be more of a fall-off. As Whereas O-line, I think you can get some quality O-linemen in middle rounds into day three. It's just that deep. It's a really good interior O-line class. Yeah, and I mean, look, we wouldn't, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that you're at the combine, which is to me, one of the most interesting parts of the NFL calendar year. And honestly, it's not even because of the players. Like I know that they're the headline, but what I find most intriguing is that this is the only time all year that you get all 32 front offices in the same city at the same time. And we know from the Russell Wilson trade that deals get done on the back of napkins at bars. And you know, it's early in the week, but What's the sense you've gotten so far regarding Seattle's approach to this offseason, if any? Well, we, we got a lot of insight on it from not getting insight yesterday. And what I mean by that is the Seahawks, they are behind the eight ball compared to what they normally are. And for good reason. They had this long coaching search. And then Mike McDonald's got to build out his staff. And now he and that staff, they're trying to get ready for the offseason activities that are going to be coming up in early April. I mean, they're on right now they're on rapid reaction, trying to get all this stuff done quickly. And as John Schneider was saying yesterday, like we haven't even had a chance to really get into discussions with free agents and look at what our free agency plan is. We got to consider what our new assistants want. What what they've had the last 14 years is a lot of consistency with who's on the staff with Pete Carroll. And so it was easy for those guys. We know what players that our assistant coaches want. We know what our head coach wants. We're in sync Right now, they've got a brand new coaching staff led by a first-time head coach, and so it's the polar opposite. Like They're just trying to play catch-up mode right now. So I made this argument yesterday. What that tells me is there's a chance that they're going to be even more active with what's going on behind the scenes this week because they're trying to play catch-up. And so this may be the week where you're going to be discussing with a number of agents and 
you can figure out, okay, we got a great chance to re-sign Leonard Williams. We're in good shape. Noah Fant's not looking too good or whatever. You know, they're going to no, be able to start. Uh, to, to be fair, Noah Fant deserves to go spread his wings somewhere. Yeah, I would agree with you. I was just using that as an example. But yep. the, the point yep. the point is that I, I think that there's a lot of discussions going on behind the scenes. And, and John Schneider, he said the dynamic is not going to be any different in his opinion yesterday. But you don't have Pete Carroll there anymore. You've had him there for 14 years and they've always been together in indies, so there's got to be some different dynamic to that. Does that give John Schneider? Does that give John Schneider more leverage in this decision making now that he's not necessarily? I mean, I know he wants to be hand in glove with Mike McDonald. He's he said as much, and he says he's going to try and approach things the same way that he did with Pete Carroll, sort of a 50-50, You know, I want to make sure you're getting your guys, but I also need to make sure I got my guys type of thing. But the fact is, Pete Carroll's a Hall of Famer. Pete Carroll's the chief football officer of the Seattle Seahawks. Mike McDonald is not those things yet, right? And so, no, and I, I don't expect that it's going to be the exact same between those. I don't and think Schneider Mike has McDonald's. all of these relationships. I mean, one thing about John Schneider, that dude will belly up to a bar and talk football. Well, we saw it when he was uh, with Ryan Grubb the other day. That's exactly <laughs> right. Putting that together, so uh, and uh, all the uh, fan reporting that was going on at that point. But yeah, I, I think when you look at the structure of way things are set up right now, I expect that there's going to be some significant differences in the way that things operate now, the way they do their interviews, and the way that they structure their roster, their draft board, and stuff. I don't think there's going to be any major differences there because I think John Schneider was the driving force behind those things, especially the last few years. I'm saying this just based on my opinion. I feel like the last couple seasons that we have seen John Schneider pull some of that power in the draft room. And I think you you can look at the drafts that they've had. They got away from like when they had issues with, hey, we need to draft safeties because Earl Thomas is getting older. He's getting beat up. Let's just draft Tedrick Thompson and Lano Hill instead of drafting guys just to try to plug in spots. They have been getting the best football players, and that includes in the offensive line. They've still been taking some of their risks on athletes. But I mean, Tedrick Thompson and Lano Hill were not those guys. Reek Woolen is that freak that you can try to mold. So I feel like John Schneider kind of had already started to pull some of that. And maybe that's why we're in the situation we're at now where he is the lead dog now. And Pete Carroll's not here. But it feels like that's been a driving force the last couple of years. The drafts have just looked different to me. Yeah. You know, and and the Seahawks have some big decisions on their own roster to make this year. Every team does. But with Seattle, I mean, there's some big ones here. You got Tyler Lockett that you know, there's a potential decision to be made there with a post-June 1st cut. Quandry Diggs, Jamal Adams, Will Disley, Jordan Brooks, and others. If you're John Schneider, how are you prioritizing those guys? Well, Leonard Williams, of course. (laughs) Leonard Leonard Williams is probably the biggest one. one. Yeah. Yeah. Williams is number one, not just because you traded a second-round pick for him, but I think you can make an argument in the 10 games that he was on the Seahawks roster, he was the most consistent playmaker that they had. He had four sacks, 11 quarterback hits, and nearly double-digit tackles for loss in those 10 games. And while seemingly everything else around him was crumbling, he was coming up with big plays. And I felt bad for him because he's like, I thought I was going to a contender, you know? And yeah, right. it didn't work out that way. But I think he's also a really good locker room guy. 
So I anticipate they're going to find a way to get that deal done, not just because of the compensation, but because he's a dang good football player and he's going to make this football team a lot better. As far as what the second thing has to be, it has to be cutting Jamal Adams with a post-June 1st designation. This shouldn't even be something you have to think about. And I I looked at John Schneider's statement yesterday. He he basically in nice terms said, yeah, we're moving on as far as I'm concerned. That's the way that I interpreted it. Like, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. No, you guys know what's going to happen. I would be stunned if Jamal Adams is on this team next year with that cap hit. They, they've got to get some money opened up somehow. That's the first one that's natural. And I think Will Disley's the second one that you're going to have to figure something out there, whether it's doing a extension that's going to lower his cap hit or ripping up his contract and coming up with something new. A $10 million cap hit for a guy that had less than 20 receptions last year at the tight end position. I don't care how good of a run blocker he is. That is way too expensive of a cap hit for somebody that is not a top 10 caliber tight end in the NFL, at least based on production. So those two guys there, the one that I feel differently about than a lot of people do is Quandre Dix, because I still, when I watch film with the Seahawks defense for all the issues they had, and Quandre Dix missed more tackles than what we've seen in the past, but teams still don't throw the seam in the post route against this team. They, they do don't. not. They and do not. It's, it's all sale routes and over routes. Yeah, it's attacking the linebackers. But when it's when it's that center field responsibility, Quandre Diggs still is a lockdown free safety. Like teams just don't even attempt to do that That's very right. often. And, and right. I also look at the track record for Mike McDonald, and I've been told that this may not dictate what the Seahawks do because John Schneider may overrule this by saying, hey, we need cap space. We're going to make a move. But I have been told that Mike McDonald is very high on Quandre Diggs, which would make sense because look, look what he did with Geno Stone. And I think Quandre Diggs is a more talented football player. I agree. You put Quandre Diggs in positions that he can make plays, which I just don't think that this last coaching staff really did a good job of that across the board. I still think Quandre Diggs has a couple good seasons left in him. And I, I'm not letting the one interception last year – deter me from that thought process. I think you put him in a defense where he's put in position to make plays. He is still a ball burglar. So we know Mike McDonald loves turnovers. I have a feeling that's going to be one of the veterans. He says, hey, we got to find a way to make this work out. I'm predicting that they're going to do a one-year extension to lower that cap hit a little bit. Yeah, that, and, and and that would make sense. You know, I, I think something that gets missed when we talk about defenders and their value is – the really special ones can take entire plays out of an opponent's playbook. Yep. And Quandre Diggs does that. I mean, yes, he missed a lot of tackles last year. He was also covering for blown assignments all season long. And, and if your safety, if your free safety is coming up and you're asking him to make 120 tackle attempts a year, you've got a bigger problem than your safety missing tackles. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and so... You know, the thing that Mike McDonald has done at every stop is weaponize his best players, right? We saw Jadavian Clowney on a essentially CPR contract in Baltimore keep his, his NFL career alive, dominate. Justin Matabuke, dominate. Obviously, you have really top-end talent in guys like Roquan Smith, Patrick Queen, Kyle Hamilton. But they weren't just, hey, go out there and, and handle your assignment. 
It was like, no, how do I get my best players around the ball as often as possible? And that's what he did. And and I think with Diggs, that's what you see. I am very curious your opinion on the future of Tyler Lockett and Jordan Brooks with this team. I think Lockett is another one that's kind of in that Quandre Diggs category where you got to find a way to get that cap hit lowered. I just, I am totally against the idea of cutting him. I just think he's still too good of a player. He's too valuable in the locker room. Maybe after this year, he retires. We'll see what ends up happening on that front. I could see him being a guy that's out of the league in the next year or two, just because he's already got a number of interests off the field. And that's totally fine. He's had a great career. I don't think he's quite ready to be done yet, though. And I don't think they're quite in a position. I mean, Ryan Grubb, maybe he's making the argument, hey, we can draft a receiver if we move on, you know. But I just have a feeling that Tyler Lockett, that John Schneider's not going to want to move him that way by cutting him. I could see this being another situation where they do an extension where they are able to mitigate that cap hit. So I just think he's too valuable a player still. And especially in an offense which may cater to his skill set a little better. I didn't think that Shane Waldron did a very good job of getting him involved last year and taking advantage of his skill set. I think Ryan Grubb's going to be able to do that. So that one is tough. I mean, I could understand if they decided to make the tough move and bite the bullet, but I still think Tyler Lockett is a really good player. And I, I think extending him is similar to Diggs. If you're wanting to win now, I think you've got to have those two guys around. On the other end of kind of the career timeline, you've got Jordan Brooks. And you got to make a decision on this guy. I happen to be pro Jordan Brooks. I think that he is a guy that has been asked to do more than you can ask of almost any middle linebacker in terms of just the sheer volume of responsibility that a borderline inept defense puts on a middle linebacker. I mean, he has to be there to attack the ball carrier. He has to be able to rush the passer at times. But the biggest thing is they were asking him to cover these sale routes and to drop back and pick up the loose defender that one of the corners missed or whatever. And and I think he's been pretty good at it. But when you're in a position like that, similar to Quandre Diggs, it leaves you exposed to great playmakers making you look silly. And that happened to Jordan Brooks. And a lot of fans, I think, have kind of turned on him or are over him. I'd like to see him back. Is there a way that this team can extend Jordan Brooks in a way that makes sense to the salary cap with everything else they want to do? There absolutely is a way they can do it. I think you sign him with the money that's opened up from cutting Jamal Adams and Will Disley. I th- I really view it that way. You have $12 million in cap space right now. You add those two contracts, the money that you're going to get from that. And then, of course, you're going to have the extensions with Diggs and uh, Tyler Lockett that's going to open up some change as well. So they're going to be able to find ways. They have a lot of mechanisms to create cap space. And so I'm feeling differently about this than some people. I have seen some experts who really understand what they're talking about say, hey, why not sign him to a couple-year deal? Because there's been some injuries there. I get that. But this guy's 26, three straight years of over 100 tackles. I want to see him play for Mike McDonald. We saw what Mike McDonald did with Patrick Queen, who, oh, by the way, was viewed as a bust his first two years in the NFL. Look what he's done the last two years. I want to see Mike McDonald and this staff Kirk Olavidati, the inside linebacker coach, who is fantastic, one of the best inside linebacker coaches in the business, to be able to add him to your staff was a big deal. 
let him and Mike McDonald work with Jordan Brooks. And I think you could see this guy take his game to the next level where right now he's a very solid starting linebacker to turning him into a Pro Bowl, maybe even an all-pro caliber player. I mean, Devondre Campbell became an all-pro in Green Bay for Kirk Olivadotti, and he was just an average starter in Atlanta. If they could have that kind of effect with Jordan Brooks, who I do think has been put in some really tough spots schematically, it goes back to what we've talked about a couple times in the show. Put your players in position to succeed. If you can do that with Jordan Brooks, I think you could see him take off into potentially star uh, trajectory here. So, well, listen, we 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 have proof of concept with that because Jordan Brooks' contemporary is Patrick Queen, and that was yep. a big deal on draft day. Is that the Seahawks took Jordan Brooks when Patrick McQueen or Patrick Queen was, you know, a close to consensus top inside linebacker in that draft class, and Patrick Queen disappointed early on. And then Mike McDonald showed up and it's like, oh, there's the all pro caliber talent. Yep. And I don't think there's anything Queen does that Brooks can't do. And so I would just, it it would feel like a missed opportunity to me if the Seahawks brought in Mike McDonald and didn't let him get his hands on Jordan Brooks. And I've been told that Brooks was the favorite over Queen in Baltimore. I have been told that by multiple people. So, Is that right? So so, Mc, so McDonald's excited then? I would think, yes. I would think that Mike McDonald is fired up about the chance to coach him. And I just think you've seen enough flashes on tape. Put him in position to succeed. So uh, my projection of my blueprint was four years, $45 million. I think. Oh, I is- would sign that tomorrow. I think that's more than fair. That's going to make him a top 10 paid linebacker in APY because I think he's got that kind of upside. And get him locked up before free agency so you don't have to get in a bidding war. He wants to be here. He's made that very clear multiple times. And the other thing I love about him is his competitive fire. Like This is a dude that when he loses or even if he misses out in the playoffs, like when they lost or won that game, it felt like a loss when you looked at Jordan Brooks. Like Obviously, there were other guys that weren't treating it that way after that season finale in Arizona, but Jordan Brooks looked like his head was going to explode. Like This dude wants to win. He is an incredible competitor. So Mike McDonald, I think, is going to absolutely love him. I I would view him as one of their top priorities. Him and Williams, got to find a way to get them both re-signed. Those those are the top two for me. And, you know, Last year when we were doing our positional breakdown series, we had Dave Wyman on to talk linebackers and he was just gushing over Jordan Brooks. And he talked about how he had linebacker eyes like Dave Wyman looks for linebacker eyes. And he said, man, you could just show me the eyes of every player on this team. and I'd be able to tell you which one is Jordan Brooks. And, and I think, you know, there's something really, really special about that. So I hope they make that happen. If, if they could only keep two of these guys, I freaking love Tyler Lockett and Quandre Diggs. I hope they're on the team next year. But if you only give me two of this group, it's Leonard Williams and Jordan Brooks. Listen, Corbin, as always, this has been terrific, man. Thank you so much for making the time during a busy week. Yeah, no problem, guys. Always looking forward to talking Seahawks football, football in general. So Yeah, amen. Well, you and I could do it all day. Look, before we get out of here, where can the folks listening find more of you and your stuff? Yeah, you can find me on X and Threads at Corbin Smith NFL. You can read my articles at si.com slash NFL slash Seahawks. And of course, five, sometimes six days a week, Locked on Seahawks with my co-host, Rob Ray. All right, y'all. That's going to do it for today. As always, you can find Mike and I on social media. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Remember that no K is okay when spelling my name. 
Mike is on Twitter at, at @MikeBarwin, and the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can catch full video episodes on our YouTube channel at Cigar Thoughts, and find the rest of our socials at CigarThoughtsNFL.com. This episode is brought to you by Westland Distillery in Seattle, which is my favorite local whiskey maker. If you're watching on YouTube, you've seen me enjoying a glass of the Garyana Number Eight. Sadly, the very end of the bottle. I broke it open in the last show to celebrate the end of a wonderful season, and the reason it's a big deal is because this exact release was just named the number three whiskey in the world by Whiskey Advocate. Westland is an American single malt whiskey distillery in the Soto neighborhood of Seattle. Their tasting room and bar are open to the public, where they serve whiskey flights, cocktails, and small plates. There's a bottle shop on site, featuring distillery exclusive releases and more, located at 2931 First Avenue, a little over a mile south of Lumen Field. Needless to say, I'm stoked to be working with them, and one of the reasons I love their whiskey so much is that they're excellent pairings with a good cigar. And speaking of, we do have our own special release of cigars that you can purchase at a terrific price as a listener of the show. Until now, you've been able to order your own bundle of 10 for just $169, which is less than half of what this blend sells for in cigars on the open market. But because of the success of the Cigar Thoughts release, we have lowered the price to just $149, and we've decided to keep it there. That's right, only $149 for a bundle of 10. As many of you know, we partnered with one of the most prestigious cigar manufacturers in the world to release these official Cigar Thoughts cigars, which you can order directly from CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Just follow the link on the show page to get these easy-to-smoke stogies rolled with 13-year-age premium Dominican tobacco leaf, or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram and we'll send you the details directly. The cigars come with the Bevita humidification pack and a Mylar storage bag to make sure they stay fresh, whether you have a humidor or not. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a quick review. Thank you to all of y'all listening for your continued support of the show. We know you've only got so much time for podcasts in your life, and it's an honor to be a part of that for y'all. Please know that by sharing this show on social media and with your friends, you give us the juice to keep making this happen. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Mm-hmm.